Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Layla Pasty joins us today. She is an attorney at Norton Rose Fulbright, focus area being corporate financing and M&A involving technology companies. Prior to Norton Rose, Layla niched in intellectual property and M&A practice in Silicon Valley for over six years. Layla, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Thank you to you and the Beehive team for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I'll start off by telling you a little bit about my role at Norton Rose. So I'm focused on technology and more specifically on corporate financing as well as mergers and acquisitions involving technology companies. And I tend to work on both sides of the table. Uh, My clients include entrepreneurs and small to mid-sized technology companies or they could be VC or PE firms, as well as enterprise acquirers investing or acquiring those companies. And after a deal concludes, I remain working closely with those clients. I help them primarily with their complex intellectual property needs, and I handle everything from software licensing contracts to data strategy. And these days, my small to mid-sized clients are, you know, trying to weather the current economy. And much of my work involves helping them weather the uncertainty by assisting on fundraising deals and also helping them with the legal aspects of pivoting their businesses altogether by either developing new products to address emerging market needs or uh, you know, looking for new client, uh, new revenue streams. And prior to Norton Rose and Prior to even entering the legal profession, I practiced as a professional engineer and developed and implemented a number of industrial machine learning solutions in the oil and gas industry across North America. And so before taking up my current position at Norton Rose, I had a niche intellectual property merger and acquisition practice in Silicon Valley for over six years and worked in a number of high profile technology company or portfolio acquisitions. So I bring that lens to the work that I do with my clients, both in the um, startup and in the investment field. And, you know, I'm going to take this time to say, um, as a lawyer, I'm always cognizant of the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as a lawyer, but none of this should be considered legal advice. We're just here to discuss this generally. And, uh, you know, if anyone has any legal questions, I'm happy to talk to them outside of this conversation. Perfect. Perfect. Now, speaking further into your niching in mergers and acquisitions and the advice that you've provided on financing, uh, taking a step back to the core basics, could you explain what is deal structure? Sure. So deal structure describes the terms and conditions of the agreement between a buyer and a seller that apply in a given business deal. So for example, in a business investment activity, that may be a seed round investment, or in in regards to a merger activity, it could be a company acquisition. And a deal structure is typically related to some type of asset. In an investment activity, it could be uh, shares of stock. Whereas when we talk about mergers and acquisition, we're talking about the acquisition of a business. And the deal structure or the terms and conditions in an agreement 
will vary based on the assets involved. So whether we're acquiring shares or we're acquiring uh, a company. And it will also focus on the intentions of the parties concerned. And in all deals and all term sheets related to deals, there are a few basics found to govern each deal. So one question that a term sheet will seek to answer is what? So we're identifying the asset that is being traded or sold. And the contract provisions will include a description of what that is exactly. So it clearly identifies the asset without question. So for example, in a Series A financing, this refers to the class of preferred stocks sold to investors in exchange for their investment. A second question that a term sheet will answer is when. So it'll address the circumstances under which the investor or buyer is allowed to assume control of the asset. For example, in selling an IP portfolio, uh, the owner may sell the portfolio with the provision that a certain percentage of the purchase price is paid as a down payment, and thereafter a series or periodic balloon payments occur at a predetermined schedule thereafter. The term sheet will set up that payment schedule and also seek to answer the questions as to what happens if the buyer misses a payment. In addition, in each situation, the term sheet will provide protections for all parties concerned. So it will provide them with certain rights that enable them to benefit from the transaction and also certain responsibilities that they must manage in order to continue enjoying those benefits. So when we take, for example, a term sheet for a corporate financing transaction, Typically, investors will negotiate certain protections along the lines of protective provisions. And these protective provisions are a negotiated set of actions that the startup cannot take without the consent of the investors. And those actions that are restricted by the protective provisions typically include that um, those that can negatively impact investors or significantly impact the founder's company. So for example, if the founder wants to amend the articles of incorporation so that it would adversely affect the rights, preferences, or privileges of the preferred investors, the preferred investor will want to have some right to sort of manage that change. Um, The preferred investor may also want to have control over the changes of the number of directors from certain numbers or have rights to approve any mergers or liquidation or any corporate reorganizations. And um, so those are the kind of provisions that one would find in a term sheet that structure a deal. Perfect. Given that, in what ways do you think these sets of rights and responsibilities expressed in the term sheet can have implications on future financing partners? That's a great question. And, you know, that's something that I like to remind clients to be mindful of. From a financial perspective, an important thing to keep in mind is that the terms negotiated in your Series A or even your seed rounds, depending on the complexity of that deal, tend to be the baseline from which the terms of subsequent rounds of financing will be negotiated. So a solid foundation in your Series A will likely facilitate a smoother process in your next financing round. And I also caution clients about the temptation of agreeing to non-standard terms in their Series A. You know, typically they want to hurry the process along so that they can get the investment. But that can typically complicate future funding. And if a founder agrees to terms that are not ideal in the first round, they may find investors in subsequent rounds asking for similar terms or being reluctant to drop any previous less than ideal terms. 
Very interesting. And I do believe that this can have very serious implications. That is correct. Now, sequencing the types of terms that are typically included in various financing stages from seed to early stage to mid to late stage financing rounds and then to acquisition deals. Speaking in terms of the seed stage, could you explain what the key economic and control terms are that are typically included? Sure, happy to. For the early stage, I'm going to focus on angel investment. And angel investors typically invest through convertible debt. And what this means is that the investors lend money to the company with the loan amount being convertible into equity shares of the startup. And a key advantage of that is that the parties can defer fixing a valuation on the enterprise until a future financing round. And when the future financing round is complete, the debt converts into equity shares at the purchase price determined at that time, sometimes subject to a discount rate. And as you can imagine, in these uncertain economic times, that is quite an attractive proposition for investors. So the key economic terms for an angel round consists of quantifying the preferred return of investment, or it could be quantifying any accruing earnings on the investment, depending on how the deal is structured. So when I talk about preferred returns, uh, we're talking about representing an amount that the startup must return to the angel before it distributes any payments to other stakeholders. And with angel deals, this amount typically does not exceed the original investment amount. Um, And as a founder, one should be wary of negotiating any term sheet that proposes a different formula, barring a compelling reason to do so. And, you know, one compelling reason could be, you know, the uncertain um, investments landscape right now. The other economic term that a term sheet may consider is accruing returns. So accruing returns can take the form of accrued dividends on equity shares or an accrued interest rate on convertible debt. It is typically rare in angel deals that such interest would actually be payable in cash. Instead, these amounts accrue and then are converted into equity shares at the same time as a principal amount of the loan. And the industry has no set standards for accruing return rates. Um, You know, prior to this quarter, I would have said that these rates vary between 5 and 12 percent. But, you know, we've, we've seen that vary a little more in the current market. And in negotiating these arrangements regarding convertible debt structures, founders should keep in mind that the discount rate, if any, of the future purchase price. And angels typically don't ask for a discount rate and accrued returns. So those were the economic terms. And then in terms of control terms, you know, um, angels may sometimes require formal representations regarding the board of directors, um, but they typically won't want or require control. The most they may ask for is one board member or an appointed observer. They may also require certain reporting procedures, such as monthly sales or product development updates. And generally, founders will agree to provide these, um, you know, based on how much of investment the angel is providing and provided that, you know, the reporting obligations don't detract from the startup's objectives. And if a startup has found the right kind of angel investor that might add value to the business, they'll typically agree to, you know, provide those kind of uh, representation rights and reporting rights. And then again, um, corporate governance and shareholder agreements may be included in the term sheet. Angel investing almost always requires a shareholder agreement amongst the founder group and the new investors. 
And, um, you know, as a founder reviewing these proposals, I want to keep those points, um, you know, utmost uh, in their mind. And they'd also want to consider these preemptive rights provided to investors or any consent rights over um, future financing rounds. Now, you just mentioned preemptive rights. Could you further explain what preemptive rights are? So, you know, I, I think of these along the lines of, you know, pro rata shares. So if there's a future funding round, then the investor gets the right to participate in that round. Um, they also may have rights to consent to how those future rounds are shaped as well. I see. Now, what trends have you observed during these current economic times in regards to seed stage economic and control terms? So even before the current uncertainty, there was an emerging trends for VCs to invest in seed rounds. And, um, you know, I think I've heard the phrase being bandied around um, seed rounds of the new Series A. And, uh, you know, VCs appear to do this by really dusting off their Series A's term sheets, which are generally more complex than the term sheets that you would see in a, um, a seed round. So, you know, I think we will likely see that more economic and control terms in seed rounds are going to look like Series A term sheets, and they're going to be more complex and give investors more economic rights and more control going forward. And I also think we're going to see investments feeling less rushed because investors are approaching seed deals quite cautiously as well. Now, moving on from seed stage financing deals, to early stage or series A financing deals, what key controller economic terms are typically introduced at this stage of deal and what are they intended to incentivize? So we've already spoken about some of these, but I will expand on at least one that crops up in a series A term sheet, which is liquidation preference. And so this applies when a liquidation event occurs when equity is converted into cash. And so typically, um, you know, it's the exit strategy for a company where a company is acquired. And when distributing liquidation proceeds, preferred stockholders, so the Series A investors, will have a right to get a certain amount of money back before the common stock. So, you know, common stock held by the founders, for example, get anything. So that is the preference. And sometimes um, investors will also include multiples. So they would prefer a multiple of their investment, one, two, three. Um, you know, previously it was more around one, but now we've seen two and sometimes three, depending on, on the deal structure. And in addition, investors may sometimes negotiate accruing dividends. So essentially like adding an interest rate component to the preference. And the uh, preference can also be capped. So we, we talk about preference overhang, which refers to the total amount of liquidation proceeds that go to the holders of the preferred stock before the holders of the common stock begin to share in the liquidation proceeds. And so this is just a means for the investor to protect his or her investment. And there are three types of liquidation preferences. So there's the non-participating preferred liquidation preference. So what that means is the uh, original investor gets paid his original purchase price on each share of the Series A preferred. And thereafter, the balance of any proceeds are distributed um, pro rata to the common share. 
So if the liquidation is not preferable, the VC has protected its initial investment. There's also the cap participating preferred. So in this scenario, what happens is the investor is paid the original purchase price on each share of Series A preferred. And thereafter, the Series A preferred participates with the common stock on an as-convertible basis until the Series A preferred receive an aggregate of whatever multiple of the original purchase price they negotiated in the term sheet. So again, that's a good way to recoup your investment and then some. And then lastly, this is probably the most unpalatable to uh, founders. It's the uncapped participating preferred. So in this scenario, investors get paid the original purchase price and each share of Series A preferred. And then thereafter, the Series A preferred participates with the common stock on an as-converted basis. And so, you know, I think, in the, again, in these terms of uncertainty, we may see a shift to the least palatable of the three, the uncapped participating preferred. And, um, you know, again, control features here in the Series A term sheet, uh, we'll see more special voting block rights on um, important corporate actions such as financing and M&A transactions, as well as operational activities like hiring executives or entering commercial or strategic actions. And I think there was an emerging trend of investors being more hands on, but fingers off. So involved, but giving companies leeway on you know, the minute decisions. But I think we may see more investors, um, you know, taking a more proactive role in the management of companies as well. And I think we've also, you know, we've spoken about these when we we spoke about the protective provisions of a term sheet. And we'll definitely see more of these in times to come. So generally speaking, in economic downturns, what are the terms that typically shift and why is this? So, you know, I think one thing that we'll see is liquidation preference. So I, I mentioned there are, you know, like three buckets of these preferences. And I think we're going to see a shift to the less palatable version. Um, you know, it, typically in some markets like Europe, that double dipping has fallen out of favor. But, you know, we've, we're seeing even in Europe that investors that have preferential shares are getting, um, you know, at least a non-participating liquidation preference. Um, you know, but that may shift even in markets like Europe to an uncapped participating preference. So, you know, essentially it's a move to be more protective over your initial investment. We'll also see anti-dilution provisions. Um, you know, if an investor believes a company is raising money at too high a valuation and they still want in, they may ask for anti-dilution provisions. And this means that if the company can't achieve the growth that it's promised and has to raise uh, the next round at a lower valuation or a down round, the investor has their shares topped up. So it's almost like if their last investment was at the lower valuation or somewhere in between. And I think, again, with the market uncertainty, those type of provisions will be heavily negotiated. And on a related note to anti-dilution provisions, we'll probably see more negotiation of ratchets. So when an investor gets anti-dilution protection, there are various methods of calculating how they should be topped up. And the most aggressive is the full ratchet, which can significantly dilute the founders on a down round. And the more commonly used methods are broad-based and narrow-based weighted average, where the investor is topped up to some middle ground between the old and new valuation. So I, I think there will be some focus on um, you know, how those play out in future funding. Beautiful. 
Now, moving into the differences in scenarios from an early stage financing round or series A to a mid to late stage financing round. At this point in the venture's journey, what terms typically become the focal areas and why is this? So, um, you know, many of the terms we've already discussed, but for a series, you know, B or C in these current times, um, you know, I think a company may be forced to raise at a valuation that is less than its valuation when investors paid in previous rounds. So uh, a down round. And this usually happens when the company is desperate for capital infusion, but has made less than sell growth metrics or is faced with the current market conditions. Companies may also be forced to raise at a valuation in a flat round. So this is when the valuation remains the same from the previous round. And so in down or flat rounds, um, new investors receive a discount on both the price of equity, since the valuation has you know, remained unchanged or diminished, and also on the risk of the investment. So the company has had more time to prove their ability to re- release product and acquire paying customers. But this negatively impacts current shareholders at the market price for their shares, although it's still private, has diminished. So some of the rights from earlier investment rounds come into play. And so in a Series C round, even in a VC syndicate, um, this means it allows more investors to participate in a a round of funding, which will typically have a lead investor. And the lead investor is typically responsible for taking charge of, of meeting with the leadership team, conducting due diligence, and otherwise vetting the potential for a successful investment. And finding a lead investment in a Series C can become quite difficult when your previous investors don't have enough money to meaningfully participate in the next round. So if your previous investors typically wrote checks for between you know one and three million, they may not be able to lead around for you know twenty five to thirty million. And that doesn't mean that your previous investors won't be able to contribute to the round at all. In fact, they may have the right to do that through pro rata rights. And pro rata is the investor's first right of refusal to invest in future rounds. And although some may disagree, many investors feel that it's only fair that a company's early supporters have the right to participate in doubling down on their investment. And some investors absolutely require pro rata rounds in their term sheet. And many VCs have raised additional funds um, specifically to participate in these later rounds. However, um, you know, we might likely see more pushback from late stage investors. And they're going to say, you know, if we're going to pay up and write you a 30 million check, you early stage investor need to be fair and step back from your pool pro rata. So, you know, maybe you take some and maybe you take none. And they typically want to play hardball and say to an entrepreneur or a company, if your investors won't give up pro rata rights, we won't invest. And so that puts entrepreneurs in a tough spot. So, you know, those are some of the, you know, nuanced negotiations that we're seeing, you know, in a series C round that we may not necessarily see in a a series A or a C round. Very interesting. Now, given these nuances and these scenarios that can occur, in what scenario does a venture debt deal become a viable or preferred alternative to an equity-based deal? So, you know, in the current market, venture debt gives lenders a guaranteed yield. So it can be certainly very attractive to certain investors. 
And it also can be quite attractive to companies because it doesn't dilute ownership. And, um, you know, it also um, allows companies to avoid raising money in a lower valuation than the previous round due to current market conditions. And, you know, it, many startups are opting to also take convertible notes. And convertible notes are a short a form of short-term debt that converts into equity, um, usually at a future funding round. And so essentially, they're either getting these convertible notes from existing investors or raising inside rounds from them to invest, to avoid going to the market. Now, moving on to typically the next phase of a deal type from a late or mid-stage deal to an acquisition, what are the core sources of acquisition intent by potential acquirers? So investors acquire for several reasons. And certainly in the tech sector, which I'm most familiar with, we've seen three dominant types of acquirers. And I generally believe that M&A, at least for the next little while, will continue to be dominated by these acquirers. So first, we will see acquirers looking to accelerate market access for the targets or buyers' products. And often relatively small companies with innovative products who have difficulty reaching the entire potential market and ripe for acquisition. So with thinking or talking smaller technology companies who lack large sales forces to get in front of potential customers and larger tech companies sometimes purchase these smaller companies and use their own large scale sales forces to accelerate the sales of the smaller companies' products. Um, this play can also help accelerate market access for the buyer's products. And often strategic acquirers, like a large software enterprise company who is already in the same business as a target, will employ this tactic. Second, we'll also see acquirers looking to get skills or technologies faster or at a lower cost than they can do both. And again, you know, looking to the technology sector, many technology-based companies buy other companies that have technologies they need to enhance their own products. And they do this because they can acquire the technology more quickly than developing it themselves. They also do this to avoid royalty payments or patented technologies. And they also do this to keep the technology away from competitors. And an example of this would be Verizon's recently announced definitive agreement to acquire BlueJeans Network. BlueJeans, as you know, is a leading enterprise-grade video conferencing and event platform. And Verizon intends to strategically leverage and grow, grow its own emerging 5G technology to produce much more advanced video conferencing capabilities. So that acquisition is more than just an adjacency expansion deal for Verizon. And this is a play by strategics that we've seen um, you know, time and again. And we're also starting to see this in the financial sector. Banks and insurers uh, you know, have previously been focused on a rapid digitization play. And um, you know, in the current economy, in, in some cases, um, you know, they're accelerating that play. And um, you know, I imagine uh, they will continue the trend that we've seen uh, certainly last year in acquiring um, technology companies or their assets. And, um, you know, there, there's always a certain flavor of acquirers or acquisitions where we see acquirers who are looking to improve target company's performance. And here an acquirer buys a company, radically reduces costs to improve margins and cash flows to reduce bottom line. And in some cases, the acquirer also takes steps to accelerate revenue growth and grow the top line. 
And many private equity companies pursue the, the strategy. So, you know, these are the three flavors of uh, mergers and acquisitions that I think we'll see in the next while. Excellent. Now, with this said, what trends have you observed in preferred acquisition deal types during these times? Yes. So, um, you know, we've definitely seen those type of acquisitions. And, you know, generally we're seeing more assertive buyers. So buyers are becoming more assertive in agreements and negotiations. They want more favorable language in the purchase agreements, more stringent reps and warranties about the assets and the companies that they're acquiring. And, um, you know, another observation is uh, that's generally being made is that acquirers may look to see where they can claw back value to compensate for possibly overpaying in the previous seller's market. Um, we're also seeing earn-off mechanisms. So with increased uncertainty, buyers are looking hard at contingent considerations. So this is where we typically see part of the purchase price is paid upfront with the rest deferred and based on the acquired business hitting certain targets. And while, you know, that may not be a preferred deal structure for the seller, um, you know, it certainly is attractive to a buyer buying in the current market. And we previously saw this in certain sectors, such as a tech startup without a proven track record, or maybe a pharma company waiting for federal approval of a drug where it's not clear what revenue a company acquired will generate. But because of the current market, an acquirer is probably less confident in a target's projected fiscal year earnings, and there'll be more contingent-based deals. And I think that may lead to a dispute in the future over closed deals with earners that are still being settled. And then, um, you know, one of the trends that we've seen in M&A deal structure or uh, in the negotiation of the deal is the bargaining in regards to a material adverse change clause. And these are fairly popular in terms of economic uncertainty because they enable buyers to terminate the, um, the transaction, walk away from the transaction if certain events occur between um, you know, signing and closing. And buyers will propose wording that covers as many scenarios as possible while sellers will want to narrow that scope. Um, and so, you know, again, these are quite heavily negotiated in the current times. With that said, what would you say are the key sources of prolonged acquisition closes? So, you know, I think we're just generally seeing longer deal timetables. Um, you know, it's an inability to meet face-to-face, and that's slowing down diligence, especially of management. And in the short term, COVID-19 itself puts constraints on the time that management and investment committees can give, give to new deals. Um, we're also seeing diligence taking a little longer. Um, you know, just things like collating documents for data rooms, site visits, meeting with uh, management, these all become more challenging. And, uh, you know, in considering a target, you can expect buyers to have a particular focus on the issues raised by COVID-19. So, you know, what kind of redundancy programs do they have? Do they have contract resilience uh, with their customers? Are they taking government support? And what does that entail in the long term? And then, um, you know, as well, from a privacy perspective, there's increased concern about whether IT and security risks are becoming uh, more heightened because of the remote working environment. I see. Excellent. Now, moving on to a more broader scope in terms of the market as a whole, 
what key considerations do you feel leadership teams should have on top of mind as they maneuver and exit their current economic environment? Well, that's that's a great question. And, you know, when we talk about current economic environment, if you asked me in 2019 what 2020 was going to look like, I would have said that we were going to see a continuing trend of larger deals at higher valuations, but in more mature companies. But now I think 2020 is going to look more like the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, which is incidentally when I started my legal career. And looking back to that time and thinking about what investment looked like, I think deal sizes and valuations will decline, as will the number of deals close. And I also think we will see company maturity at the time of financing increase. And by that, I mean the age of the company and the percentage of generating revenue will continue to increase as investors become more risk averse. I also believe we're going to see more U.S. style due diligence in deals where VCs and PE firms do a deeper dive on the due diligence, including tech due diligence, um, you know, privacy due diligence as part of the continuing trend of risk mitigation by investors. So, you know, the question then becomes, is it all doom and gloom? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? And, um, you know, against that backdrop of investment, I also see incredible innovation coming out of Canada. And that is not completely surprising. Since the innovation cycle follows its own S-curve rhythm and is not generally influenced by capital market trends. So instead, the innovation cycle is driven by fundamentals of new technology and long-term market needs. And that will continue to spawn new opportunities. And the current crisis has, in some ways, accelerated the need for certain technologies that offer better connectivity and the ability to perform tasks remotely, such as distance learning and remote medicine. And there's also a continuing need for institutional and companies to digitize as they seek to optimize business processes and cut costs. For example, I've seen an uptick of adoption of AI technologies by companies as they no longer have the luxury of waiting to implement new technologies. So against that backdrop, what is the takeaway for leadership teams? Historic trends show that some of the best companies are formed in capital market down cycles. So think Slack, Square, Cloudera, all these companies got their initial investment in 2008 and 2009. And so companies can take advantage of fresh opportunities and free of market clutter. And the founders of those companies are typically the hardiest. Their teams are talented and their companies are operationally excellent. And I also think that companies fitting that mold will be ripe for acquisition by strategics towards the end of the cycle. So for a company who's demonstrating those um, criteria as they innovate, they should keep an exit strategy in mind and ensure that they exit ready. So to ensure that readiness and just as part of good operational practice, I would say leadership teams should be aware of the importance of building technology strategically and compliantly. And by strategically, companies should protect their IP by filing patents and licensing their technology and data to customers in a way that protects their rights. In addition, where companies are ingesting data, especially personal information, they will want to ensure they're doing so in a legally compliant way. And in short, the answer to leadership teams is, you know, keep your head down, build strong teams and innovate responsibly. Perfectly said. Well, Layla, that brings our time here to a close. I am very glad that we were able to have this conversation. And thank you so much for joining us on the Behalf Capital Show. Well, thank you so much, Douglas. It was a pleasure talking with you and I really enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Talk soon. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raised your spirits during these trying times. All the best, Douglas Obusu and the Beehive Capital team.